as an urban planner, we are very good at dreaming, at vision. If you think about the visionary urban planners, we've always been very good at thinking, what can our cities become? But my focus now is getting people to understand our cities can only become the result of who is allowed to belong in our cities. And if we don't allow people to belong through gentrification, through segregation, through pushing out homeless people, then our cities will just become elite spaces. We can't allow that to happen. I want our cities to become the result of who gets to belong. And I want to, us as urban planners to make sure that we confer belonging to many more people than we are at present. Julian Ajaman, Belonging and Becoming, coming up on the Janice Adams Show. First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what... Julian Ajaman, scholar, educator, reimagined cities for a brave new world of belonging and becoming. And he's my guest today on the Janice Adams Show. I dream of a city of bread and festivals, where those who don't have the bread aren't excluded from the carnival. I dream of a city in which action grows out of knowledge and understanding where you haven't got it made until you can help others get to where you are or beyond, where social justice is more prized than a balanced budget, where I have a right to my surroundings and so do all of my fellow citizens, where we don't exist for the city but are seduced by it, where only after consultation with local folks could decisions be made about our neighbourhoods, where scarcity does not build a barbed wire fence around carefully guarded inequalities, where no one flaunts their authority and no one is without authority, where I don't have to translate my expertise into jargon to impress officials and confuse citizens. In your vast work, you chose that quote. Why? To me, it speaks to the excitement of the city, the possibility of the city, the responsibility those of us who know and understand and have voice in the city can help those who don't have voice in the city to help people understand the importance of recognition of difference and diversity and not just to recognize the importance but to celebrate that importance and to embed that importance into the very structures of the city it's no no good just celebrating the city we need to have people um understanding and valuing the city for its institutions which reflect them. And at present, we don't have institutions reflecting ordinary people in the city. Do we have those values being expressed anywhere? I think some cities are trying to think about um, difference and diversity. But in too many American cities, we have... um, you know, people looking at difference and diversity in terms of how do we manage this difference and diversity. I want to see cities celebrated and to embed it in institutions. So take, for instance, Boston. We are now a majority minority city. But do the institutions of Boston reflect that? We still have all white or all male boardrooms. You know, the the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston doesn't reflect the new Boston. Many of the big law firms don't reflect the new Boston. Um, We need reflection of the city as it is, not the city as it was 50 years ago. People talk about majority and minority cities. And I'm always struck by that phrase, especially when we look to that as a sign in America of justice since much of the patterns of racism and segregation are rooted in the majority-minority communities of the colonial era. I mean, the majority-minority status is what led to some of the most vile human rights violations. So why is it going to lead this time to something else? Well, I've got a very strong belief that um, if organizations, whether nonprofits, whether um, you know institutions of higher learning, whether governmental institutions, any institution I think should reflect 
the communities that it serves. And we patently don't have that at the moment. One very good example of an organization, a nonprofit in Boston, for instance, that I can think of called the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. In the early 1980s, when the organization established itself, it did a demographic analysis of the local community in Dorchester, Roxbury. Um, and they constituted the board of directors to look like, to look like the community. And so they had a certain amount of places for Cape Verdeans, for Haitians, for uh, African-Americans, etc. In doing this, the organization has 40 years on a legitimacy, attraction. It's effective at what it tries to do. It's very well trusted, both by the community and by funders. It's still the only nonprofit in the United States that's had been given eminent domain status to uh, to take land to develop affordable housing. They have community land trusts. They've developed the Dudley Commons. It's an organization of 40 years standing that is still going strong. And I think in large part that's because it is of the community. It looks like the community. It is legitimate. It is trusted. It is therefore effective. I think we need to think about that much more in terms of governmental organizations. Um, we have this mismatch in many of our cities between who is in the city and who governs the city. That's got to change. And it, in this idea of interculturalism, it should be changed in terms of not just ethnicity and race, but all the different cultures that are represented, sexualities, different um, different modes of being. We are in a phase now in the 21st century where there is a splintering of identities. How many of those identities do we see in our boardrooms, in our decision-making, um, in places of uh, decision-making? We really don't. We still are... Uh, in the dark ages in many ways in terms of those those spaces and I really think it's time for change. I like the example that, that you've given who could look at that organization as a model of what they could and should become and how would they make the transition? Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative is a small non-profit in the Boston area as I say but I think it is a national or international model for democratic representation in many ways. And I think many uh, organizations could look at it. You know, look, one of the latest uh, sectors to be criticized is the tech industry, which is woefully inadequate in terms of especially African-American, male and female representation, woefully inadequate. It is Uh, a white boys club, let's be honest. It is a white boys club. And In that, it is a bastion still, therefore, of white supremacy. I was on a panel recently, um, and there were two African-Americans, and I count myself as African-American, even though I'm African-European, and there were two white folks. And at the end of the discussion, I said to the moderator, how would this discussion have been different if Tamika and I hadn't been there? And there was absolute silence, because... The two 10-minute presentations from the two white folks, very good presentations, great, but they didn't really mention equity and social justice. The focus of mine and Tamika's presentations was equity and justice. It's not to say that the two other presenters were racists or white supremacists, they weren't, but in their routine daily thinking about climate change resilience, which is what they were presenting on, they don't routinely think about issues of equity and social justice, whereas Tamika and I, we live those issues every day, so they are to the fore in our practice, in our theorising, in our uh, presentations. But what was really interesting was that silence, that silence when I said, what would this panel have looked like? What would it have sounded like if Tamika and I weren't there? The words equity and justice would not have occurred. So presence, presence, recognition is really important. And having voices, different voices on boards, on government uh, commissions, on panels is so important. The words equity and justice, is there an institution that exists where the words are not necessarily uttered, but the fact of those words is included? You know, Janice, I don't think so. Um, Here's why. 
I look at policy making. That's my my role as a professor. I look at policy making and urban planning, and my analyses and my students' analyses are that too often issues of equity and social justice are implicit rather than explicit. So in that panel that I just described, equity and justice may well have been implicit, but Tamika and I made it explicit. We talked explicitly about equity and social justice. Now, here's the challenge. I have yet to find policymaking where a focus has been on, say, technical or economic or environmental imperatives that has then led to social justice or increased equity. Equity and social justice don't simply happen. They have to be front and centre in our policy making. We don't get to equity and social justice. We start with equity and social justice. And I can give lots of policy making around the world where uh, equity and social justice have been centred and led to greater and more equitable and more socially just outcomes. I cannot give you an example of an environmental, economic or other policy that has not centred social justice or equity that has then, by accident, led to greater social justice and equity. So, in answer to your question, no. If institutions aren't routinely talking about and centering equity and social justice, we won't get any closer. They might be and most of these institutions believe in a more equitable future, but equity and social justice are left implicit far too often. We need to centre them, we need to be mindful, we need to be intentional about moving towards equity and social justice. That will only happen if these issues are talked about. Now, um, let me give you an example. I used to be chair of the Department of uh, Urban Planning at Tufts, We can have those conversations because when I was chair, I hired in such a way that we have now a very diverse faculty. We have over 50% women. We have uh, over a third of our faculty uh, are people of colour. It's much easier to have those conversations when you have a critical mass of people who have an interest in that. Representation, I think, is very important. Well, there is that phrase that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> exactly. I think there's a lot of table related, you know, who's setting the table, who's making, yeah. it, who's cleaning the table. Yeah, absolutely, Janice. I, I agree. Yeah. You've mentioned Tamika. Tell us who she is and what her work is. Well, Tamika Butler is um, a, um, a, a lawyer, a consultant, does a lot of work on um, environmental, um, transportation, mobility kind of justice work. She and I have been on several panels. I'm hoping that she's going to join a, a board of directors that I'm on. She's a, one of a group of women of colour who are assuming great leadership roles Julian, how do you come to your work and acting on that? (laughs) That's a great question, Janus. Um, You know, I started uh, as a biogeographer. I started with a a joint honours degree uh, from uh, the UK University in in botany and geography. I was a field botanist, a biogeographer. But as I got older and I moved to London, I started to realise the environment is not that open field where I can just go and look at plants and marvel at nature as much as I like to do that. But that when I got to London, I realised the bus services were different in different neighbourhoods or there were more parks in certain neighbourhoods than others. I realised the spatial injustice of access to resources and that it was largely class-based and to a certain extent uh, race-based as well. And it... it, um, it developed in me a calling um, that I could use my environmental skills in the urban environment rather than simply in the rural environment as I had used them before. The other thing that really affected me was uh, straight out of university, I was a um, high school geography teacher in a very rural part of Britain. And I used to take kids out looking at glacial landforms and looking at ecological features and There was me, a mixed-race teacher with a bunch of white kids, and people, hikers, would stop and stare, and 
I started to think, why is that? You know, I'm the teacher. I'm wearing the correct gear. I've got all the correct gear. I've got a, you know, a backpack. I've got my maps. I look good. But I realized then that there was an issue in the UK with uh, race and the rural environment, that basically the black experience in Britain was largely an urban uh, experience. And that, you know, when we as black or mixed race people, brown people, moved into or worked in rural environments, we were seen as something other, something different. And so all of these, you know, the, the London experience, the rural Britain experience, really made me understand that there's a certain positionality of black and brown bodies and how we move through spaces, whether we are perceived as being um, legitimate in those spaces or not legitimate or slightly exotic and rare in those spaces. And so it developed in me this this more of a social science understanding of the environment. And it got me involved in policy making and planning. And that was really how I got into my, my, my passion for um, social justice, spatial justice and cities. You've mentioned your life as a mixed race person. You've talked about coming from, I guess, northern England. That's right. Um, and so, and then you talk about being a botanist. So let's go back to the childhood part. And if, how did you, where do you come from, Julian? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you come from? It, it's, Where it's, are you coming from, Julian? <laughs> it's almost like that, that you know, that, 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 that exchange that we as black and brown people have always had when somebody says, where are you from? And I say, well, <laughs> I'm from Yorkshire. And they say, no, where are you really from? Oh. <laughs> Meaning, what part of Africa? Well, actually, I mean, let, let's start with Africa. I mean, my father... Um, was Ghanaian, uh, is Ghanaian, mm-hmm. um, and my mother's uh, white English. And, you know, my folks split when I, when we were kids. I never really knew my father. But my mother used to take us out. She'd grown up in, uh, in, in rural England between Sheffield and Manchester in the what's called the Peak District. It's a national park in Britain. And she always had a love of nature. And so as kids at the weekends, we would always be going out, you know, walking and I developed a love of plants and birds. I used to go bird watching. I got a pair of binoculars for my 11th birthday and a membership of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And I was hooked on, on nature. Uh, you know, I just loved it. I, and you know, in the early, yeah, well, the, uh, the early mid seventies when I was going out bird watching, you know, I, I was probably the only black bird watcher and I used to go out with my friends and we used to take a packed lunch and we'd just go out for the whole day and watch birds, record them. We'd have our little handbooks. We'd sit with more experienced bird watchers, you know, so that if something that we couldn't identify came along, they would say, Oh, you know, that's a, you know, that's a hoopo or that's a Sabine's gull or whatever it was. It's just, it, it consumed my life. Um, and, you know, whilst I don't do as much of the nature stuff now, I, I still love doing it when I get a chance. But, you know, again, my focus is mainly on understanding the urban environment, difference, diversity, inclusion, and what our cities can become. And, you know, as an urban planner, we are very good at dreaming, at vision. If you think about the visionary urban planners from kind of Jane Jacobs or um, Ebenezer Howard, we've always been very good at thinking, what can our cities become? But my focus now is getting people to understand our cities can only become the result of who is allowed to belong in our cities. And if we don't allow people to belong through gentrification, through segregation, through pushing out homeless people, then our cities will just become elite spaces. We can't allow that to happen. I want our cities to become the result of who gets to belong. And I want to, us as urban planners to make sure that we confer belonging to many more people than we are at present. When we come back, more with our guest, Julian Ajuman. And the question, he's talking about belonging and becoming. He's coming from being a botanist to an urban planner. And my question is, so how does our garden grow? 
when we come back. We're back with our guest, Julian Adjaman. And before the break, we asked what I hoped was a provocative question, which is how does our garden grow? And I'm looking at your, and inspired by your background growing up in love with nature. And it would seem that so much of what we are looking at in urban planning is the lack of respect for what nature teaches us. So how does our garden grow, Julia? That's a great question, profound question, Janice, and, and one that I could answer in many different directions. And I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to um, answer it in a, at least a couple of directions. So I could talk about how does our garden grow or how could our garden grow? And our garden could grow a lot better than it currently does. And I'll, I'll come on to that hopefully in the rest of the interview. But how does our garden grow at the moment? There's been a movement um, in city planning for at least um, 100 years or so to bring nature to the city. Some of us would say, though, actually nature's already in the city. You know, you look at the, the busted sidewalks, you look at the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, vacant lots. They never stay just concrete. They're always, uh, in the summer, a, a profusion of, of different plants, urban nature. And what's really interesting to me, in fact, my PhD, I was looking at how you know, rural environments have a different flora to urban environments. And in many ways, our urban environments have a multicultural ecosystem of plants from all around the world, all around the world. And when I was in London, and remember, London had been populated for thousands of years, and traders and migrants had come for thousands of years, and they brought with them all of these incredible plants from around the world. You know, there's even a plant that came back or came to Britain on the bedding of sick troops coming back from the Crimean War. Uh, I can't remember the English name for it, but its Latin name is Gallinsoga parviflora. What an amazing story. And then, you know, another plant, uh, an English, well, <laughs> it was, uh, it's given an English name. It's called the Oxford Ragwort. And so everybody thinks it's English, but actually it came from the um, the slopes of Mount Etna in Italy. And uh, it was brought over in the 16th century to the Botanic Garden in Oxford. And at, in the 17th century, the early railways started. And the, the, the rail beds were made out of basalt. Um, and the fireboxes from, um, from the steam trains would kick out all of these sparks and it recreated the, um, you know, the, 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 the Mount Etna uh, volcanic landscape in many ways. So you can map how the Oxford ragwort from Sicily moved around uh, Britain according to the development of the railways. So you have all of these fantastic stories, um, botanical stories that are linked to, um, you know, human experience. And this is where I think, you know, our garden grows in many ways. Our urban garden grows in a reflection of the human species being in cities. So we have, in any city in the world, there will be fascinating stories which can be linked to human migrations, to economic produce being brought to those cities. Now, some plants become uh, invasive. Um, and there's a whole another discussion about the way we treat and what things we call invasive species. Um, and there's a whole nastier side of environmentalism um, about the elimination of invasive species um, in wordage that is reminiscent of some of the words that we use today, hate-filled words. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so our garden does grow. Our urban garden grows. It grows slightly differently to the to the garden out in the, the, the rural environment. How could our garden grow? Well, I think, you know, this speaks to my, my, my quote about the, um, the immigrants and food in our cities and the fact that our cities are slightly warmer because of what's called the urban heat island. 
lots and lots of very interesting things will grow in our cities. And excuse me, the urban heat island. Yes, the urban heat island. Okay, so and, and thank you for uh, asking me on this. So because of the activity in the city, there is um, you'll notice a, 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 about a two degrees Celsius temperature difference between the inner city and suburbs and exurbs, the, 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 the more rural parts. So, for instance, you know, when you're listening at night to the, um, the weather forecast, um, you can get frost out in the suburbs, but yeah. maybe you don't get frost in the city. So this is what's called the urban heat island. And this can be significant in terms of growing things. You can get palm trees growing in London. Uh, you can get all <laughs> kinds of strange uh, plants growing in the city, which you might not get in more suburban areas where you don't have this urban heat island. So a lot of immigrants um, that I've noticed are growing. They're bringing ideas of what to grow. They are practicing what we call translocalism. Often when immigrants are asked, what is local food to you? They say, well, it's it's my Filipino food or it's my Jamaican food. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of translocalism, bringing your local with you, which then I think challenges this idea that the uh, alternative food movement has when they say, oh, local food, that's Massachusetts food or it's Maryland food or... What is local food in an intercultural society? Is local a geographic concept? Well, as a geographer, it isn't. There is no such thing as local. There's not a signboard that says you are now leaving local and going national. There's no such thing as local. It's whatever we decide it is. But what immigrants are doing with this idea that their food is local is developing a cultural notion of local. And let me give you a really good example of this. Um, In Maryland, there's a a farm, the Bowling Farm, 60-acre farm, that used to be largely tobacco. And the state of Maryland, quite rightly, is trying to incentivize people to get out of tobacco and diversify into other areas. So George and Julia Bowling um, looked around and thought, what are we going to grow? And then they sort of thought, well, there's 120,000 Africans often middle and upper middle class diplomats, lawyers, surgeons, professors. They want to eat African food. They want to eat local food. They don't want it flown in. Maybe we can grow some of the stuff that they want in our farm uh, in Maryland, and then they can drive out from the D.C. area and pick their crops. And that's precisely what's happening. They enlisted the help of the African community, and they... um, worked with the University of Maryland Extension Program to look at what crops will grow, what cultural conditions are needed. And there's even a list of recipes within this little uh, information pack that the university put out. Great American entrepreneurialism that satisfies the need for local food by the African community. So again, I ask you the question, what is local food in an intercultural society? Is it what the largely white, upper middle class alternative food movement says should be local or is it what the Filipinos in San Diego, the Africans in DC, uh, the Chinese Canadians in Vancouver who make up 15 to 20 percent of farmers in the greater Vancouver region, that's Chinese Canadians. We have to think about agriculture differently. We have to think about it differently. We have what I call a new agriculture which is um, being driven by immigrants coming and bringing the crops with them, bringing their ideas with them, and using these crops to create their own foodways, their own um, methods and um, ways of creating cultural significance around food. And we all celebrate food, and food is bought, um, food ideas are bought as recipes, as as, as, as ideas from, from your homeland to where we are now. And many of us enjoy that, obviously, as we go to restaurants and try different cuisines. Yeah. In many ways, then, our garden, I think, grows well, but it could grow better. Thank you. I'm listening to you talk about local and that concept. And I hadn't thought about it this way, but it strikes me that our definition 
is still kind of ground in a colonization of the mind in that we are defining Oh, so I do get it. Okay. We are defining local with a kind of a line drawn for what Europeans obviously brought to a certain place, especially in the United States. And that is then once again set up as the standard and everything else. Absolutely. Janice, look, we live in a settler colonial nation and we have a settler colonial mindset. We have a settler colonial vocabulary and yes. settler understandings. And I spend a lot of time with my students deconstructing this language. Now, um, if I were doing this in front of my students, I would show you a slide um, which says, buy fresh, buy local. Mm-hmm. Buy fresh, buy local. These slides are in every state, these, these signs. And... When I look at those, whether it's Tennessee, whether it's Massachusetts, all the crops that are there in the basket are Euro crops, Euro settler colonial crops. There's no Kalaloo, there's no African bell peppers, there's no bok choy. It is redolent of a past America rather than the America of the present or the America of the future. Somebody has constructed this imaginary of America by fresh, Mm -hmm. by local. And here's the danger. It is exclusive. It is not inclusive. It, you never see, if you see farmers in the picture, you never see black or brown bodies. It's only white bodies. Unless they're workers. Unless they're workers. But it is. Meaning, meaning not to interrupt you, but to interrupt you very quickly, just to define it. Yes. That means that they are people who do not have ownership, who work the land. Exactly. They do not have agency. They are purely workers. Um, this imaginary of uh, agriculture, I think, aligns very much with um, certain political sentiments about nativism mm-hmm. and um, the way things should be rather than the way things actually are. Uh, there are um, examples of farms, very good examples of farms that are catering to this more diverse form of agriculture, but there's still an inherent bias, I think, for this localism that is redolent of a past America that is not uh, pushing out into new ways. Now, I gave this talk... Um, uh, about sort of localism, um, the new agriculture, if you like. I gave it in two locations. One was in Vancouver, and I talked about the Chinese-Canadian farmers. Mm-hmm. And uh, an African woman put a, a new immigrant to Vancouver, an African woman put her hand up, and she says, yes, Julian, I shop at the Chinese-Canadian farmers' markets because they grow the food I want to eat. The other farmers' markets don't sell the food I want to eat. And then in mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon, I gave the same speech, and a Native American woman came up to me. She said, thank you so much for decentering these ideas of what is local. Yes, and especially if from a Native American. In, in fact, please, when you tell that story, then tell us something about that Native American food, since that would be local. That's, that's exactly what she said. She said, these, these alternative agriculture people, they think they're being so organic and everything, but they have erased my interpretation of local foods so yes you're right this is a settler colonial mindset the crops we grow now obviously climate is going to be important but basically we've got different cultural techniques and ways of growing different kinds of foods and surely the food we grow should reflect the people who are there and what those people want to eat not what an elite alternative food movement says we should be eating. When we come back, more with our guest, Julian Ajuman, after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Julian Ajuman, scholar, educator. He reimagined cities for the brave new world of belonging and becoming. 
let's talk about your book, The Immigrant Food Nexus. I know you've edited that book. In fact, one of the statements from that book you have on your website that I absolutely love, so I'm going to ask you to read it now. This story is a single foodways thread woven within the collective human story, a thread that speaks of recipes from all cultures carried in memories on folded and stained pieces of paper, in pockets and bags like identity papers, only meaningful to the beholders, only fully real once cooked and eaten. My goodness, you know, I saw that and it's written in paragraph form and I said, wow, what a poem, what a statement that actually is. Carried in memories, unfolded and stained pieces of paper, in pockets and bags like identity papers, only meaningful to the beholders, only fully real once cooked and eaten. And on the cover of the book is a map recognizable as North and South America, but in images, icons of food. Tell us about the concept of the immigrant food nexus. I read you the quote um, from the authors of chapter 14, uh, whose chapter is called Recipes for Immigrant Lives. But I would like to read just my words, which follow those. I wrote, these words remind us of performativity, materiality and intimacy of food carried across time and space. They remind us of the multiplicity of cultural, religious and social meanings embedded within the cuisines we create and consume. These foodways are anything but static. Migrants carry complex and life-affirming foodways with them as both memories and dreams, creating an umbilical link between where one is from and where one is now. Take us back to the little boy in Yorkshire, who falls in love with plants and nature and birds. And tell us what that means. (laughs) Well, it tells me personally, when I reflect on it, how intimately I feel for environments, for all living beings and their right to be and their right to belong and their right to become what they want to become. And it speaks to me as that little child. Um, Can we come back to that piece? We can. And then you can tell me why afterwards, why that affects you so. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure, Jane, it's why it affects me. It just, there's certain things, certain things, um, you know, little triggers um, that, that just, bring out an emotion in me. Um, But that's what's so important. Because we are taught to be behind this veil. Sure, sure. You know, I'm in my early 60s. I I often say to to friends, um, you know, it's taken a long time to become comfortable in this skin. I'm sure you have this, Janice. We, We have to develop uh, coping strategies. We have to do all kinds of things to um, to become comfortable in our skin. And we come to this to this life comfortable. Yeah. We are then trained to be uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then we have to find our way back to ourselves and comfort again. And it is not natural, and it is not easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know. Um, so, you know, as a kid growing up, I mean, I, I had a great life. I lived in a middle-class background. You know, my mother was a teacher. Yeah, I didn't have a dad around. But just that piece there, when I was thinking about, um, you know, knitting together this this intimacy between sort of human, um, human um, you know, animal, plant, um, you know, environmental becomings and belongings it just really hit me that that um that this was something um that had a really deep background in me this idea of nurture and growing and always having animals and loving animals and plants 
that that what I do now is is a continuity of that. And you know, when 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 you hit a raw nerve, an emotional nerve, not in a bad way. This was a good thing because um, I hadn't really connected this nurturing that I'd done as a kid and wanting to uh, be part of nature is in a sense a continuation um, and it's continued into this work about um, you know people's rights about human rights about the right to the city about the right to grow what you want to grow rather than being told this is what you can grow in Massachusetts so you know <laughs> thanks for bringing me to that spot I think I'm I'm over the uh, uh, the emotion there. <laughs> that was that was a, a very deep um yeah very deep moment um thank you for bringing that to us because the shield that i was talking about is the one where we distance ourselves with words like policy and urban and um you know, we even otherize ourselves as a society so that we no longer deal with the fact that this is about people. This is about people's lives. Um, this is about a history that has separated all of us from the fundamentals of life and then tried to normalize that dysfunction. Well, normalize and it costs. That, normalize that violence. I mean, <clears throat> you know, it, it, we could call it, I think it's generous to call it dysfunction. Thank you. Okay. Calling it violence is, is, I think, a more appropriate term. And, and that violence, I think, is increasing in many ways. Violence in the sense of violating people's right to belong and become. Violating people's right to belong and to become. You have... Your newest book is called Just Sustainabilities. Link it together for us, please. So let me think about this idea of just sustainabilities. Uh, improving people's quality of life now and into the future in a just and equitable manner while living within the limits of ecosystems. That's the definition of just sustainabilities. Um, but when we think about this idea of sustainable development, some people say, well, no development can be sustainable. Um, but what they're thinking about is physical development. But the notion of sustainable development also means human development. Um, and I say this, as a geography teacher in the UK in the early 80s, I was confronted by a student of mine, David, who said, Sir, what do thickies, dumb kids, like me do now we've finished our exams? Nothing in my education had prepared me for this. David was not dumb. He was an average kid who felt he'd failed himself and us as his teachers. He hadn't. We'd failed him in our inability to help him flourish and find out what he was good at. We were, of course, far too quick to tell him that he wasn't good at anything and that he'd internalised this probably to this day. 25 years later, I was in Ghana and I was stopped by a young woman selling hot peppers. She asked me if I wanted to buy her peppers and quickly assured me that I shouldn't think of her only as a seller of peppers. She was trying to make money to pay for her education. Two instances, thousands of miles and 25 years apart, made me fully realise the need for a just sustainabilities approach to development. People around the world are simply trying to flourish, to develop their capabilities and to realise their potential. In the environmental movement, the loss of environmental potential is rightly lamented. Every acre of rainforest we lose might hold a cure for cancer, green people will say. To me, however, David in the UK and the Ghanaian hot, papers, uh, hot pepper seller um, and African-American men generally, more of whom are in prison than in college, compromise the tip of the iceberg of global inequality. They represent a desperate planetary waste of human potential and the denial of capability. These could be the future researchers discovering those cures for cancer. And that this loss of potential is every bit as profound as the loss of environmental potential as we destroy the rainforest and other ecosystems. So... What I'm saying there is that, you know, often green 
activists, environmental activists decry the loss of environmental potential. We're losing the Arctic. We're losing the um, the rainforest. We're losing the um, you know the savannas. Whatever we're losing, yes, very important. But we're also wantonly wasting human potential, which is equally important. And just sustainability really recognizes that we must increase human potential and increase environmental potential. And indeed, in losing that human potential, that may be why we're losing all these other things, because we've squandered what we had. Absolutely. And then we, we look at those people like David or the, the, uh, the, the, the young woman in Ghana or African-American men and say they have no potential. We are denying them potential. They have abundant potential. And think of the, um, you know, think of it in, a, in a, an instrumental way. Think of the economic potential that we are wasting along with the wasted potential of their lives by imprisoning rather than, uh, you know, giving them access to college. You know, uh, another part of the world made me realize this. I traveled in South Africa in the uh, immediate post-apartheid years. And one of the highlights of the trip Mm. was a trip to Cape Town and to Kayalitsa, Guguletu and Langa, um, to the townships, I have never seen anything as creative as I've seen in the South African townships. There were people in these little huts, poorly lit, mending uh, hi-fis, mending clocks, mending things. You can bet they've not been to school to learn how to do that. They learned it through their natural intelligence. Mm -hmm. There were clips on the electricity lines that went past the township rather than to it. And people were getting electricity illegally. And I just thought, this economy here in these townships, if it could be brought into the wider South African economy, it would add billions of dollars to the tax base. It would add massive creativity to the creativity and innovation base of the nation. So I I think of this denial of potential, of capability, as being absolutely unjust and totally unsustainable. We need, as you said, we need this creativity to help us conserve environmental potential. And again, who knows what these young people could be doing uh, if we um, if we had some way of developing uh, their capability and honouring their their right to belong and their right to become. The right to belong and the right to become. What's next for us, Julian? Well, I think we're 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 at a crossroads. Um, certainly in the United States and and, and perhaps globally. Um, and you know, we've got to make do with less. For me, for you, for other wealthy people, that's fine. We can make do with less. We absolutely can. But try saying that to people just down the road in Roxbury and Dorchester. You've got to make do with less. That's just not going to fly. And this is a whole, I think, a whole other conversation about how we communicate sustainability messages because we cannot communicate a flat message to, to all people. Those who have more than they need, I have more than I need, uh, I could tone it down. But, you know, to the family down the road, they can't tone it down. They don't have enough. Really. They need to turn it up. They need to turn it up. And actually, this is one principle, I think, that we should start to explore a little bit more, is, you know, how do we um, sort of, you know, reallocate resources such that those who absolutely don't have enough to even have a decent quality of life can get to that point where they can enjoy a decent quality of life. How do we do that? And how do we do that without great pain and great anger from those, you know, who've made huge amounts of money? And, you know, when you look at our current political, um, you know, consensus, uh, you know, the Democrats are saying we won't tax people who are earning above or, or below 400,000. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Lot of money. Yeah. So, you know, Janus, I mean, we know where we need to go. 
We're just not doing it. We know where we need to go to make that transition to the just and sustainable future and not to go down the slippery and horrific slope of a descent into a, a barbarist, uh, gated community future. We know, we know what we need to do. We've just got to have politicians, I think, with the courage and vision to, to make it, make it real. Julian Adjerman, author of Just Sustainabilities, editor of the Immigrant Food Nexus. Earlier on, I mentioned this phrase, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. In terms of the menu, I want to just ask you in closing, what should we have for dinner tonight? What should be on our menu tonight? What would you love to see on our menu tonight? Literally, love of botany, aquaculture. (laughs) Well, I can tell you what's going to be on my table tonight. Great. Um, But, you know, Just Sustainabilities would allow for people to let me know what they want on their table tonight. So on my table tonight is baked cod um, with couscous um, and some form of salad to be decided. But baked cod um, done um, according to the the English chef, Jamie Oliver. Really Mm -hmm. simple, baked for 18 minutes, but with what I call basil, but you call it basil. Um, Mozzarella cheese, and, you know, um, mini tomatoes, uh, and then a sprinkling of parmesan, and that yeah, cook it at 4:25 for 18, 20 minutes, and it was beautiful. I'm coming. Yeah. Thank you so much. My thanks to Julian Adraman and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast and for more information about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Thank you.